Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of 2022 with Cricket with an Accent. And today our accents are just getting elevated as I introduce a man who's as versatile as Vasim Akram if he was a bowler. Uh, he's a cricket contributor, uh, Jared Kimber. Uh, an absolute pleasure to be sharing this platform with you. Welcome to the show. No worries. Well, um, since you mentioned Vasim Akram, I just found out that when he batted top four in one day cricket, he averaged 18 with a strike rate of 138. So he's basically sun on the rind. So uh, I'm taking that as even more of a compliment than you meant it. Right. And I'll also uh, give a caveat. You know, when I invited you and you accepted, I was a little nervous because you were as quick with it as the common English being my second language. I do a fairly good job. So I know, you know, I'm going to be dealing with a lot of wit today. So for the listeners, well, you know, pardon me if I'm not quick enough. <laughs> to, to match my host, uh, my guest. <laughs> I'm um, I'm Australian, so uh, you know English is my second language too. Okay, all right. So that kind of uh, levels the playing field somewhat. <laughs> all right. So again, in this uh, conversation, you know, uh, I'm a hobbyist who take this uh, you know very seriously. Uh, I have a day job, so some of the questions again. This is more like a disclaimer for my listeners. Will be repeat questions because I've made this podcast into a survey. If I'm talking to an Ayaz, Ayaz Memon or Siddharth Monga or a Jared Kimber, not all questions are repeat, but it's also like maintaining a diary, like how uh, the voices that are in the industry uh, kind of tackle the same, you know, narrative, the same, you know, nuances that apply. So again, for you, it'll be uh, n- nothing new, but at least it'll be new from my uh, perspective. And today I will be talking about, you know, the changing face of uh, media, which is like a topic I've like, you know, pretty much covered uh, in every episode. And I would like to, sh- you know, share, uh, some questions with you and get your responses. Then we'll try to talk about how most destinations don't have a batting bench. India could literally put out two two teams and they'll be competitive because that's the kind of bench they have. How have we arrived here? I want your views. And then we'll talk about captaincy and a certain Virat Kohli who's just you know had his captainship tenured, you know, uh, has come full circle. So so this is like the menu, and of course, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure like you you may point me to different directions because your answers will be. I think full of, uh, you know, full of insights that uh, pedestrians like myself, you know, thrive on because we learn. So Jared, again, a very basic question, you know, uh, an outsider like me, and there are many outsiders who are creating content. We have disrupted the voice or the normal uh, behavior of the industry. How do you see the landscape has changed? You know, they're like, people who have worked in the industry like yourself and then, you know, the big houses like ESPN Crick Info, daily newspapers, and then, you know, uh, the hobbyist and the bloggers and the new podcasters, is it elevating the level of uh, consumption for a common fan or are we complicating things uh, because there's too many voices saying, you know, different things or the same thing? Uh, well, I mean, being that I was a hobbyist like you and uh, outsider, I mean, it'd be pretty silly for me to say we shouldn't have outsiders anymore. Um, although I'm sure there are people that probably came from my background who do feel that way. Uh, no, I mean, we, I don't think cricket media is that good. I don't think cricket media has ever been that good. So the more people that we have in cricket media, uh, the more views that we will have, uh, the more different ways of thinking, uh, the more things that will be covered. I mean, T20 cricket still not covered particularly well. Women's cricket's only start, started getting real good coverage in the last two years. Um, disabled cricket basically doesn't uh, have any coverage at all. Um, we've got come to the point now where, for whatever reason, all cricket commentary is um, former players almost exclusively. Uh, and that's very poor. Um, and cricket commentary in general has probably not grown as much as um, some of the other parts of the media because it hasn't had the outsiders disrupt it in the same way. Um, so, no, I think um, 
I think the more people, the merrier. I mean, it allows you to pick certain, you know, people that you like to follow. Um, what what newspapers did was is they cover cricket for news, and that's fine. Um, but that's for casual fans. It's not really for hardcore fans. Um, now you can follow a bunch of you know Tamil Nadu kids who are absolutely obsessed with uh, with our Ashwin's wrist angle. Um, how is that not better than? Uh, old cricket writing. I mean, one of the things that always annoyed me the most was you read up about these old cricketers and the old cricket writers didn't even tell you how they did what they did. They didn't tell you why they were great. You know, they told you that they were great. They could give you all the numbers why someone was great, but they couldn't say the very specific things. Well, this is what Victor Trumper did to make Victor Trumper be so remembered. Um, oh, he was exciting. Well, love. Sheeta Freed is exciting, but Victor Trumper changed cricket. So what's the difference? What happened? Um, and I think now we're in a position where I would hope um, that there are enough people and enough different mediums where we can cover cricket that way. Hey, that's quite uh, paving the way of uh, this conversation going in multiple directions. So let's uh, tackle commentary. This is, again, you know, there, there is no uh, hiding behind the fact like the Gavaskars, the Warns, and, and tennis is my sport. I know you don't like tennis, but there'll be a lot of tennis, uh, you know, comparisons. Johnny Mack uh, has been destroyed on tennis Twitter for the past decade. Because uh, the purists or hardcore fans like myself who have tennis channel and we list, listen to voices like Nick Lester, Mark Petchy, and you know Jason Goodall, these guys you know make it like a living, like a professional who prepares for his job. They know the lower ranked players, but the larger counter argument is if uh, a big channel like Channel Nine or ESPN is bringing like a McEnroe, and you just said something important, I'll also tackle that in casual fan versus a hardcore fan. They say for the pulse of the sport, we always need casual fans. So a lot of people say, oh, Mac won seven majors and he played, you know, like a Roland Garros final against Lendl, world number one for four years, and the resume is there. So they excuse that. They want to take his word for gospel because sport is entertainment. They want to stick on to cliches like, you know, uh, he's mentally not there or he's, you know, so much pressure, the situation, center court, you know, Wimbledon. So, but people like myself, also in cricket, you know, we, you know, we get in the case of Gavaskar. Why is he not prepared? Why didn't he look up, uh, you know, he has been tricking for data sheet. Why didn't he look up, you know, that player? So, so what is the medium? You know, even though you're an outsider, but you've carved a presence industry, you know how the industry works. So is the model flawed when, because they get the big names like Gavaskar and McIndroe to, to get the ratings because they have their own appeal, but then they're not really telling you something that you don't know. Maybe I stopped learning from Mac, like the moment I got tennis channel, like 17 years ago, I, I don't want to discredit him as a champion, but he's not really telling me much. And I go for the world feed and similar problems exist in cricket. I'm sure NBA fans don't like Barkley and Shaq and, you know, it's just a global thing. So how aware of, are you of, you know, what TV and the model, how it operates? Is there room to inject like a Kimber or even like, a, you know, a Ben Jones, you know, in there? Uh, so what is the best way going forward? Or is it, or the other way is, is the system not too broken? We just complain. <laughs> um. I mean, the, the most important thing I would say there is, does anyone actually watch commentary because McEnroe is on it, right? They're watching because it's tennis, right? And that's the conversation I've had with producers again and again. Most of the times when you're trying to get big names for your commentary, you're trying to impress your bosses or make the opposition look like they don't have as good a lineup, right? It's It's kind of ridiculous. So... That's where I start with that. The second one is that these people cost a fortune, right? They're getting paid 
humongous sums of money and they're not doing the work that comes with that job. That's where I am most upset. Um, you want to pay, you know, there's some, John Madden was an absolute brilliant commentator. And John Madden was a person who I think people did actually tune in more to the NFL coverage in America because of John Madden. But he was entertaining um, and he did the work, right? He, you know, they, he, he knew what he was doing. There's very few John Maddens out there. Mostly people get paid a lot of money um, because they're famous and they don't do the work. And I think that, that's the first problem that that i have uh with with any commentators in any sport um I, you know I, I i stood behind a commentator years ago in the in the lunch queue and he um and the the person who was working with him said do you watch much cricket anymore he said nah hate cricket and and the person said well what why are you commentating man? and and he said oh may i know cricket and i thought that is so stupid yeah you know cricket I'm not saying that you couldn't go out there now and still probably be fairly good even though you, you, you're retired. What you don't know is how that guy got to that position. What you don't know is what that guy has been working on. What you don't know is how that girl um, has been failing or succeeding or what it is that makes her good as a cricketer. And that is just basic common work. And if you keep hiring people because they're famous, they will give you famous celebrity nonsense, right? That's not... McEnroe's fault or Gavaska's fault or Warren's fault or anyone you've mentioned's fault. That's the fault of the people who are holding them to account, the TV companies and the producers. And, uh, and it comes back to that original argument we talked about a moment ago, which is how many extra people are watching the IPL because Son of Gavaska is commentating, right? I just, I, I find it hard to believe at a certain point that one celebrity person is bringing in a huge extra amount of audience when we're tuning in because it's a live sporting event. That's why they work, right? They're live sporting event. Now, John Madden, Channel 9 commentary back in the day, we certainly have situations where brilliant commentary matched with entertaining people can help. You talked about Shaq and, and Barkley in, in, in the NBA. They don't commentate on the games and they are there as an entertainment show, right? In fact, Barkley is is there so they can make fun of the fact he doesn't watch any basketball, right? And Shaq is there because he's an entertainer again, right? If that's the case and that's what the show is, that's fine. That's not what the commentary is, though. Yep. The commentary think- is something else. Sure. So, again, uh, the follow-up is, uh, you know, there are no free lunches, right? So no matter how much you want to impress your boss with a Johnny Mac or a Chris Everett or a Gavaskar, there has to be a metric for these TV you know, stations, uh, is, is that explored enough in the cricket fraternity? Like, you know, what value are they bringing? If, of course, we all want to watch the match. We don't really care who's calling. Of course, we have preferences, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, Michael Atherton, you know, for a lot of people add value and, and et cetera, et cetera. But is there a metric in the industry where, because I'll also throw in a tennis example. Someone quoted like on my Twitter timeline last year that Martina Navratilova complained that Mac gets paid 10 times what she was getting paid. So there's a discrepancy and she's won a lot more majors mm. than McEnroe. Maybe it's sexism. Maybe, you know, she has an accent. She's like, you know, from Czechoslovakia now living in the U.S. Maybe McEnroe just appeals to a certain audience of ESPN and NBC. So have you heard uh, of any metric where, you know, it correlates why like a bigger name gets such a hefty contract because uh, the business is still to make money? Uh, no. Um, in fact, the opposite. I mean, I mean, Sky let go a couple of big, 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 big name players recently, didn't they? Uh, Gower and Botham. They were both on very good money. Botham was on, from what I can tell, a ridiculous salary, considering that uh, 
as you would say, very similar to McEnroe, wasn't he? He was a famous cricketer from the 80s. He's a legend. Um, no one would doubt his cricket um, ability. But as a commentator, I mean, there is a, it, the thing is, you know, Warren, McEnroe, um, well, I'll take McEnroe out of it because I don't watch enough tennis, but Warren, Gavaska and Botham, sometimes they say something that does actually make me stop and think. And then I think, why is that not being encouraged, right? Again, so we go back to that. But no, I, I think um, I think it's usually the, and this isn't a big deal in cricket because of how long cricket goes for. In the other sports, what you really, the reason that Shaq and Barkley are so worthwhile and McEnroe probably over Martina is their ability to keep casual fans watching when the sport's not on. So whether it be the halftime show, whether it be the end of match show, whether it be the pregame show, we don't worry about that in cricket because our game goes for so long that people don't stick around for those other shows that much, right? Like even an IPL game goes for, what, four, four and a half hours, right? You don't, you know, you, if you could stick people around a little bit afterwards, those are the shows, though, where usually they do spend a lot more time worrying about the presenters and, and everything there. But those are also the shows where the more entertaining people are more important. You don't, you know, you, you might not necessarily want Atherton, um, you know, mumbling for 45, oh, mumbling's unfair, but you know what I mean? Like Atherton's low energy for 45 minutes, right? What you really want in that situation is someone who's fun and upbeat and it's got plenty to say. So, so in England, the, the famous example of that was Bob Willis, brilliant cricketer, but he made a career. He couldn't, couldn't keep his commentary jobs. Right. So he made a career out of being a hot take artist, a little bit like, you know, Barkley um, after the game, after the day. And it was it was brilliant TV. Half the things, 70 percent of the things that Bob Wheeler said were wrong. And he didn't believe most of them. Right. Um, But it was captivating TV at times. And um, that show, you can really tell if Bob Willis is working or not on it. What are the ratings? Are the ratings going up? They're going down. How does this compare to other um, sports or other cricket events afterwards? A cricket game doesn't work that way. You know, you, you have a cricket game um, and you suddenly, you have a, ha, have a surge of fans coming. It's probably because the game has got exciting or someone is about to do something remarkable. Um, and you can have the best commentators in the world commentating brilliantly and the game is absolutely dull. You're going to have that lag off it. So it, I think it is actually very hard to tell. Um, you, you know, in I think in America where, and, and England for Premier League football, probably, you know, some of the other countries where you have a day of the week where you watch the sport for three or four hours. It's probably easy to tell because you can check the ratings with this time last year, right? We don't quite have that with cricket, right? Yeah. It, we don't play it at the exact same time. You know, you might, you might have, I don't know, let's say the Lord's test is the highest rating test. I don't, I actually don't know the ratings in England, but um, if the Lord's test was the highest rating test, um, you would assume that, um if you played it on, uh, if it started on a Wednesday rather than a Thursday, it would have sl- slightly lower ratings just because it's a bit more midweek, right? Um, and uh, so, so from that example, it's like you can't even compare it to the previous year. It's really, really tough. So I think that would be very hard for uh, broadcasters to get a grip on. What I don't think is hard for, and, and I know this for a fact because I've talked to the old old school Channel Nine guys about this when they had a really tight commentary group and it wasn't it wasn't brilliant oh well sorry it had brilliant moments but there was a lot of flaws in that channel nine group as well you know they completely ignored overseas players they said the same things over and over again um but there was a lot of talented people that worked on that ian chapel told me he said if you came off a production a a, a commentary stint and you weren't good 
the comment, the producers would go, what was that? That was boring. That was uninteresting. Do you not want to do this job? Really taking the task and taking through what he had done that annoyed them. He said by the end of his career at Channel 9, everyone just said, great work, Chappelle. That's the difference between getting the most out of McEnroe, Barkley, Shaq, any of these sorts of people and not getting the most out of them, right? And you can improve those people. You can challenge them. Um, and you can really, really prod and probe them and push them. That's not what happens in cricket production, as far as I'm aware, from my friends who are producers, from my friends who work, but from my friends who are commentators. You don't get much feedback anymore. Um, and you certainly don't get critical feedback in that kind of way. And I think if you do that, you get a famous person saying things that are opinions. And there's a great South African comedian who, who's a big cricket fan. Um, who I remember him saying on a podcast years ago, um, uh, opinions mean in my experience, right? And realistically, if you're not doing much work, you don't have much experience other than your playing condition, your playing career, right? If that's, if that's what you're talking about and you retired 40 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago, what you're saying is pointless most of the time. And it doesn't mean that you won't come along with a, a great, a great um, way of summing something up or a great bit of information that moves the game forward. But realistically, are you educating the fans? No. Uh, quite often, are you entertaining the fans no i would say a lot of the times they're not entertaining and they're not educating you can probably get away with being one or the other you cannot get away with being neither and i think too often too many people in cricket broadcasting do that and and you asked before why i'm not on the tv it's because i say these things that's quite interesting again lot to unpack there so i'll go to a famous uh, podcast with harsha bhogli appeared uh, i'm sure you You've heard of it. It's Seen in the Unseen, hosted by Amit Verma in India. And they were talking about, you know, how the role of the commentary box has changed. And he said when he came, he was an anchor, but there were other people who were of the similar background, like who haven't played test cricket or didn't have the average of 50 plus. And it's tough to find your voice among the Manjrekers and, you know, the Gavaskars or Shastris and, you know, vice versa, or Chapels. So with that uh, was another disruption. So have you seen the shift there? That's probably the reason the game has stagnated because the Harshas, I would probably include Mark Nicholas, even though he's played first-class cricket. You know, he's not a heavyweight in terms of, you know, uh, credentials in, on the cricket, cricket arena. So you think that's where the shift happened? Because, you know, we kind of took a step back uh, as an industry. Uh, I think there's a few different things that happened. Uh, Richie Benno and Ian Chappell were both writers as well, right? If you're a writer, you probably have to think about the game a little bit more, you know, and I, there's a big difference between being a writer and having a ghost written column, right? Anyone can spew out a few things and a journalist can make it into a piece. If you are legitimately writing, which to be fair, Gavaskar did, Benno did, Chappelle did, I think at their best, all of those people had at least a background of, of a, a form of journalism. So that's the first thing that's changed. Now you literally, well, you start commentating while you're still playing, don't you? You don't even have to wait to retire anymore. Um, you don't learn any other skills. I, I remember a test player who was, I think he was still playing first-class cricket, actually. He did his first thing in commentary and he turned to me afterwards. He said, that was so easy. And I was like, that really worries me that you, that you think that, right? Um, and he didn't go on to be a good commentator, that person, and got bored with it. Because it was too easy and no one ever told him how to get better and he didn't get better and then he stopped getting offers. Um, so that, I think that is the bigger issue for me, that people aren't trained correctly. They're not trained in how to be on air. They go from press conferences where they don't say anything interesting 
to um, being on air, right? And it's dreadful. And they got social media as well. So all they ever do is get attacked. No, you know, you, no one's ever a universally popular commentator. That does not exist, right? Um, so I think that was the problem. The other problem is, yeah, so Harsh is the last real TV anchor um, who's not a former player of any kind um, who does home and away. So you get people in home markets, you know, Simon Mann in the UK and, um, uh, you know, uh, Mark Howard in Australia and those sorts of people. Um, and you're just starting to get the women coming through. So Natalie Germanos and Ali Mitchell have just started to come through. But as far as Harsha Bogle was kind of on his own for a little while there. Um, and then in radio, there's a few more of us um, out there, you know, Adam Collins, myself, um, Neil Manthorpe, um, Barry Wilkinson. Um, I'm trying to think there's probably a few others that I missed on that list uh, who come from a, a more journalist background or, uh, you know, outsider background one way or another. But we're not even close to really being frontline TV presenters. Uh, and that that is another issue. But really, I think the... Pro- Production is the bigger issue. I think when production went from treating people like they were professionals doing a job to treating them like celebrities doing a job, you know, the quality slip and commentators aren't as good as they used to be. I, my guess is that Ian Chappell is not as good a commentator as he is now as he was in 1997. And it's not just because he's got old and he, you know, he hasn't moved with the times. It's because he doesn't have someone working with him to make him better. Um, and that was my big thing. So I, I helped re retool the abc commentary in australia and that was one of my big things you cannot just put an ex-player on air and expect them to be a good broadcaster these are two different skills um and i was then hired to do a similar thing with Talksport uh with their radio in, in the uk and again saying to you know them you cannot just say you're going to be on air and be yourself this is why i've hired you these are the things that we think you can bring to this particular broadcast now that last stint this is what you did right? This was not ideal. This is why it didn't work. The last thing, this is what worked. Can we do more of that sort of stuff? That's what we really want you to do. Unfortunately, and there's some really good producers in cricket, but they're afraid of saying this to famous people as well. So I think it's almost a, it's almost like a triple threat um, situation where three different things have happened there uh, to really um, drag down the overall standard of cricket commentary. And uh, I don't know how this is fixed. I mean, Harsha was on my podcast and me and Harsha agree and disagree on commentary, um, you know, on various different things. But there's one thing that we both sort of agree on, which I kind of had to pull him around with at a certain point, which is you, the people who complain the most about commentary are not the casual fans, but commentary is for casual fans, right? So you have this dichotomy of it's all us sycophant, uh, sick twisted people who know everything about cricket complaining about commentary, but the average fan doesn't know all the time. Well, you know, unless you look at late stage channel nine, perhaps Fox. Now the average fan doesn't even know how bad commentary is because they're just, it's just an expert with a headset telling them something. Right. Um, But the problem is now that there are so many sick and twisted, you know, from the Crick Info generation people through to the Twitter and the TikTok generation and the Reddit fans and all, they know so much more than the commentators that the commentators look like idiots now, right? And you really need a casual commentary and a hardcore commentary and probably eventually you'll need a comedy commentary. You need all these different strands in order to um, 
satiate your market. And at the moment, people are trying to do that with one kind of commentary. It doesn't work. It, and, it, and it can't work, right? You watch one kind of sitcom, I like watch another kind of sitcom, right? Um, you know, and we're both cricket fans and we're both trying to watch cricket. It's, that's not going to work. Giving people options, which of which there's no reason not to do, um, is the way forward. And, you know, if you already start to see this, I think Star were probably one of the, was it Star or Sony, one of the first ones to do this. But you've seen it in America. They do some brilliant versions of multiple commentary. Um, and realistically, with buttons on our TV and streaming platforms, there's no reason why we can't do that anymore. The technology is caught up now. It's just about doing that and making sure your audience is, is happy. And that's the biggest problem for me is the people who love cricket the most have been treated the worst by the broadcasters. Yeah, that's a very wide-ranging answer, and and you're, and you're right. It's There is no correct answer. I think there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that because there are a lot of varying opinions. And, you know, even for, for me, like, uh, fandom is like a spectrum. I'm in my 40s. I learned the game in India. Now I'm in the U.S. I still follow a lot of cricket. And uh, I'm challenged every day by these, you know, whiz kids and these, you know, stats-driven arguments. And some are, like, really worthy, and I kind of become insecure and challenge how I have... Uh, you know, learn the game and they're slowly making you relearn it. But then they're also, when I talk to some friends who are more strong headed and opinionated, they say, no, wait a minute. He said, not everything is stat driven because I'm here for a different reason and you can't discount the way the game has evolved. So what is your toolkit like if you stick to your writing? Uh, I've uh, listened to your podcast with the, on Gupshap with Gil. So you're not, you, you rely on data, but you're not very data driven because you look at the game in different angles. So are there some things over the years that you're very happy that you've unlearned the way the game has fo- uh, come forward because a lot of people say it's a ball-by-ball ball event. You know, uh, even the valor and the guts and all the cliches, pressure situation, all that doesn't really belong in sport. And that happens in tennis too. You know, that's why I keep clubbing McEnroe and Gavaskar together. They're like, you know, literally, you know, on the, making the same argument and they have the same detractors. So how has your toolkit evolved? And is, is there a subset of old school narrative plus data, you know, which way do you lean more on a given day? I see. I never think about any of that sort of stuff. What's the story? What am I interested in? What have I noticed? So currently I, you know, by the time your podcast comes out, this will probably be already up, but I'm doing something on Andy McBride, the Island player. Um, and I'd start with the, what's interesting. Well, Island are using their number eight, who's never been a good batter before and batting him at number three in ODI cricket. And he's slow as shit, right? He doesn't hit the ball off the square and he'd be fried. Um, that's not a pinch hitter. It's a pinch blocker, if anything. It's a strong narrative there, right? But once I get into it, I want to know exactly why they're doing it, right? I want to go through as much information as I can. What's happened to Island batting? Okay, all their best players retired and the rest of their players are about 38. So they're struggling to find batters. They've got this bloke who can bat up to a certain degree, um, but is very limited. So if he comes in at number eight, he's going to have a strike rate of 70 and not give him anything, right? So how, how is that going to help them? Because um, he's going to be batting at the death. Whereas if they use the same guy and he's going to, he could average 30 at the top of the order with a strike rate of 70, he stretches out that batting order a little bit and allows everyone else to attack a little bit around him because they know he's not going to go out that often or go out cheaply that often. Um, so that starts as a narrative thing. It starts as me just noticing something weird that no one else noticed, probably. Then it goes into the narrative. Then it goes into the information. And then you, you're trying to tell the best story you can. If you're, you know, that might be with news and journalism. And that might be with data and graphs. 
it doesn't matter to me which one it is um, because I don't, I don't, I don't sit there and go, this is a database and this is not a database. I really, I, I probably, I sit there and go, okay, what's the best way to tell the story? Um, and I know, but I, but I've always done that. Right. The difference is that now I have more and more ways of which I can tell a story. I can, I know I can write, you know, a sketchy three minute um, stand up comedy routine on a cricket thing. Right. I know I can do that. I've done those pieces enough times to prove to myself that that's easy. I know that I can write a really emotional long form article on someone. I know that I can write a data piece. I know that I can write a newsy journalism piece. Uh, I know that I have all those things. So it's like, okay, I have noticed this thing. Maybe I've noticed it through a spreadsheet. Maybe I've noticed it through watching cricket. Maybe I've noticed it through following cricket. Right. There's all these different ways it could come to me. Now, how do I tell that particular story? And then you just look for the right tools at the right time. So, you know, um, uh, I when I, I recently did the Basil Dolavira story. So for younger fans um, of this podcast, Basil Dolavira is probably one of the most important figures in cricket. He was the reason that England at least moved on from playing South Africa. Australia and uh, New Zealand had already done it and Australia still wanted to play South Africa afterwards, um, leading into the uh, apartheid uh, ban. And um, all these people have written about Basil Dolavera, but one thing I'd never seen was an actual statistical breakdown of what had gone on. Who were the players they picked ahead of him? How was their team structure? Were they trying to make a better team structure out of not having Basil Dolavera? Was there any cricket reasons for it? Because you hear either, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't political at all, or it was completely political the best way of being able to tell that is to be able to go back at the stats. So we're looking at one of the most emotional, um, moral things that ever happened in cricket. And I'm hitting the cricket archive da- uh, databases to have a look at, you know, uh, f- uh, county games from the middle of July from that year to have a look at some of the other players that played in that side. Um, in some ways that's a really dry data thing, but, it's the opposite, isn't it? I'm talking about Basil Dolavira and apartheid and politics and what he did for our sport. Um, so I'm looking for the best store, uh, best tools to tell my story, but I'm not sitting there going beforehand, this is going to be this and this is going to be that. It's just when I get into it, I'm like, now what can I do? So you let elements outside of cricket, you know, be a factor in your storytelling. I totally believe in that, but there's a big mindset that says it's a uh, battle between ball and bat and everything else is outside noise. I'm sure you've heard that. But, but I mean, everything, I mean, you, you can't tell the story of Basil Dolavira without understanding what happened with the South African government. I don't know how much you know about the story, but they had, they had spies watching Basil Dolavira at county games. You know, as I always like to say, you know, a wet Tuesday morning in Derbyshire and the South African government had spies there watching him bat, right? That, that's not just cricket. Right? It would be disingenuous to say that that didn't play a role in it because we know the South African government put pressure on the MCC and the English government at that time, right? Uh, or, the, or the British government, I should say. Um, so that would be disingenuous. It would be disingenuous to say that um, uh, that players aren't, a, uh, aren't um, made by their environments, right? I, I always say this. There ain't no Ashley Giles playing um, professional cricket in uh, India or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. Finger spinners don't bowl like Ashley Giles there. 
right? So you have to know who, where Ashley Giannis came from and the sort of pitches that he came from and the environment he came from where you have a thick set, strong, fast bowler, like left arm finger spinner, and they only exist really in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and England, maybe Zimbabwe. Oh, Zimbabwe is probably another one. Um, they don't exist in Asia, right? You have to know that. It's not just about, you know, ball versus ball. Um, and that's really important. But how did that person get to the point where they're bowling ball by ball, right? How did they get to that point? Why would they overlooked? Why was forward alarm overlooked for Pakistan, right? Why was Scott Boland, why Scott Boland never even got a county contract, right? All of these things matter. And so it is inside and outside cricket and it's everything. And you're trying to learn from life, from science, from psychology and all these sorts of things. The things that are nonsense in cricket are the, you know, oh, he's a a great captain and he's a terrible captain. And, you know, and, uh, oh, he's tough and he's not tough because he averages 40 and he averages 35. What if the guy who's averaging 35 just has more technical faults? That's probably why he's not making as many runs, right? And maybe, maybe the guy averages 40 is more mentally tough and he overcame more things in his life to have a more solid technique. Or maybe he was born with it and he's just got a grimaced face, right? Right? And the other guy smiles all the time. And, you know, how many batters in the world have been promoted because it looks like they've got a lot of time. But if you actually slow it down on super slow replay, they don't have any more time than anyone else. In fact, we've tested them. We now know they don't have, it just looks, they just look prettier when they move into position than someone else. And they get either over-promoted or they get dropped earlier because oh, he's not trying hard enough. David Gowers is not trying hard enough because he's gone out in a pretty way. You know, sorry that he hasn't dragged the ball onto his stumps five times like um, Graham Smith or, or Gautam Gambia, right? All of these things matter. Yeah, why let a good, uh, you know, why let, you know, say a narrative get in the way? I read your article about Kohli, which I have a lot of questions about when you also mentioned about how Graham Smith and Jacques Callis and these guys had a talk with A.B. de Villiers, which is not to say that he wasn't trying before, but then it became a legend that after that his, his average yeah. skyrocketed and, you know, that's a good story why we should, you know, why we shouldn't look over the deeper lens there, what happened. Yeah. I mean, we, we have situations where the exact same thing has happened. And I've had former players tell me so-and-so went into that room and they ripped shreds off this guy. And this guy was crying and said, yeah, things must change. And a year later, they're still doing the same thing. And a year and a half later, it all clicks into place and they get good. That captain doesn't get any, uh, no one ever that captain retires in 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 between they get no benefit of that right but graham smith happened to say it just at the time that ab interviews is taking off and so the narrative is that graham smith and mickey arthur ripped um ab interviews into shape completely oblivious to the fact that he was hitting his prime as a batter at the same time was probably maturing as a human being and probably was more than you know more than aware that his actual um that that this I, I find it shocking to believe that that was the first time that Mickey Arthur and Graham Smith took AB aside and had a go at him after a soft dismissal because I saw plenty of soft dismissals in the start of his career. He'd probably been he probably had been told that from the age of sixteen onwards, over and over again. And um, we look for these big magical moments. And I wrote another piece recently about Rory Burns. And this English fan was so upset with it. He goes, it's so contradictory. You're talking about all these different things. And, and, and I was like, yeah, because Rory Burns is a 30-year-old professional athlete. And his career has gone up and down and sideways. And he was overlooked 
for ages when he should have been picked. Then he was pl- then he was picked too often when he wasn't good enough. Now he he's been rightfully dropped because he's not making many runs. But he might still be the best opener than England have. Right? All of those things are true at the same time, right? And what people want from the outside is the magical narrative, right? And the the best one ever is the Michael Jordan one, right? When Michael Jordan says. I became a great basketballer because my high school coach wouldn't pick me for the high school team. It's an absolutely great story, which is in no way true. What his high school coach actually said was, if we play you in the senior team now, you won't get enough minutes and you're too good a player to sit on our bench. Go and play in the junior level of basketball. Then next year, you'll be the starter on this team. We all know how good you are, Mike. That's what he was told, right? And the narrative is not that. He's blocked out that narrative because he has to he has to build up this thing and we do that in sport so what i try and do is look at the whole picture when i can find it right this is why this team has done this this is why this has happened this is the history of this thing this is what the data says right you try and look at it as much as possible and that's hard and people don't like that it's confusing right it's much easier to say um ab DeVoos was made a good cricketer because Grant smith yelled at him a lot it's not true. He turned up in test cricket, a good cricketer, right? He was already averaging nearly 40 as a disappointment. Imagine imagine being a disappointment and only averaging 38. I mean, ridiculous, ridiculous mindset that we have. Um, and so that's what I want to do with my work, really. I want to get to as close to the truth as possible. My, my friend, Wright Thompson, who's a brilliant sports writer, me and him always argue because he always says, I want to get to the truth. And I always say, there is no truth, right? There's just you doing a lot of work. And so for me, I go, I want to get to as close to the truth as I can at that time, right? And that will mean that politics might be involved. That will mean that um, uh, parts of cricket will be involved, that other sports will be involved. All these different things will be involved because, you know, there was a great piece on um, Jake Weatherall, the um, uh, Australian Shield cricketer for South Australia. And it was a whole article about how during lockdown, he started working on his batting eight hours a day, right? And it was so noteworthy that someone wrote about it. And I went, yeah, guys, that's a job. That's what every professional athlete should be doing is working on their skills eight hours a day. The fact that you're not in cricket and that this is being glorified tells you that there's a disconnect within the, in the game and the way that we practice the game, uh, specifically how we train and prepare players. And when it comes down to it, it's like, Though that is, I can tell you from real world and from having, you know, followed other sports that that is not good enough, right? That this person is not working hard enough at, sorry, cricketers in general are not working hard enough at their game. And, you know, that's really when, um, that's really, I think, how the problems come about. And it's not, it's not he's mentally tough and he's not mentally tough or he's from Mumbai. And so he had to try harder than, you know, than, than the kid from, um, <laughs> from somewhere else. Cause he had to overcome more players and all that sort of nonsense really is. Why is this person making runs? Can, is there a bunch of different reasons here that we can look up? Is it data, you know, based? Is it, is it, um, have they just had a good run of opposition? Have they been dropped a lot? Like minus love shame, whatever it is you're trying to find the truth as much as possible. And I think you should never, you should never stop learning. You should never stop trying to find as, as, as much truth as possible. Sure. So again, uh, we've almost been up to 40 minutes of fascinating uh, conversation. I have a few other topics to explore. So before I get to Kohli, 
I want to ask you a question because, you know, you keep looking at places that other journalists don't. So again, a tennis comparison, I was just preparing for this podcast. So I was looking at the top 10 of the ATP. The average height is 6'3". There are like five guys who are like 6'5 and above. And I compared it to like 12 years ago when Andy Murray and all, Andy Roddick and all those guys were playing. The average height of the ATP was 6'1". So in tennis, you know, uh, the hybrid tennis player came along when Marat Safin started playing the baseline game like Andre Agassi or Ivan Lendl would play sideways movement. And, you know, the taller guys were always serving ball here. So basically where I'm going is tennis has gotten bigger. Now a 6'6 Daniil Medvedev can play like Novak Djokovic. Mm. So have you noticed something similar, not even for the height, like how a cricketer has changed in the last, say, 12, 15 years? Any aspect that you would like to share here with the listeners using that example, like how the game has changed? There's hundreds of them. I mean, the height of fastball is, is the best one if you want to just stay, stay with the exact same topic, right? Um, Joel Garner and Bruce Reed would not be out of place in today's game. They were completely alien in the 1980s. You had tall, tall bowlers back then. You would fetishize them. Everyone has tall bowlers now. Um, Scotland have a six foot eight bowler. In fact, Scotland have two guys, I think, six foot six and above in, the, in their bowling lineup, right? Um, tall bowlers are everywhere. And, you know, the best way of looking at that is, you know, when you and I grew up, outswing was king, right? You were a seam bowler. You didn't have an outswinger. Chances are you weren't going to have a career. No one even has outswingers anymore. Pat, Pat Cummins is parked his away. Um, uh, Jimmy Anderson only uses his when he absolutely needs to. They're both wobble ball bowlers, right? Um, and the rest of the guys are tall bowlers. So the, the, the change in the height of bowlers is incredible, um, the other thing is in batters, batters used to be, you know, like Don Bradman. Everyone goes on about how the bats are bigger. Yeah, well, one of the reasons the bats got bigger is because the batters got bigger. You can hold bigger bats now, right? Clive Lloyd, Clive Lloyd's bat was um, an absolute monster. But Clive Lloyd was an absolute monster. He was six foot five, built like a brick shithouse, right? That's not, that wasn't how batters used to look. Have a look at them. There's him, Wally Hammond, a couple of other stronger batters, Don Bradman and, you know, Sachin Dendulkar and these sorts of little whippity sort of guys that moved around. We didn't even have tall batters. In fact, it was seen as a disadvantage to be a tall batter. And now, weirdly, it's the opposite. Um, And so look at the difference in size and strength of batters in the modern generation. They are getting bigger. And that's not just a T20 thing because that was happening beforehand as well. Um, it used to be that if you wanted to hit sixes in limited overs cricket, you'd send in a bowler because they were the big and strong guys. But bowlers aren't that strong anymore. Bowlers are core strength now. They're all about their core. The batters are the guys with the big arms and, 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 and uh, you know, the different kinds of body shapes, you know. You know, Chris Lynn and um, Chris Gale and those sorts of, uh, you know, players. Uh, so the physicality of batters and bowlers is changing massively. I think um, you, you know, traditionally we always wanted wicket keepers who were quite short and close to the ground because the ball used to run along the ground. I don't know. Adam Gilchrist is what six three, I think, off the top of my head. Wicket keepers are getting bigger. In fact, you know, it won't be it won't be that far away before we start talking about their um, their wingspan. Because that's the most important thing, right? You probably, I, I made a, a silly video recently, but the, the most ideal wicketkeeper is really someone with very short legs, but a seven foot wingspan. You want them to stay fairly low, but you want them to be able to cover first slip and leg side and be able to get their hands above their head when they need to. Um, so the physicality of cricket is, is definitely changing. Uh, the way that cricketers are playing is certainly changing. You, it would be harder now to be, a, uh, to, it's harder now to be less fit 
just in general, the general fitness levels. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're an Indian, right? You, you said you're born yes. in India. Is that right? I mean, 10 years ago, look at who India had out in the field. All right. Now look who they have out in the field. I mean, the difference there um, is absolutely huge. So yeah, the, the way that the game is playing is um, no doubt changing. The other thing is that cricket never, cricket never, always, we always went on and on about how it was a skill-based game. And I think the last 20 or 30 years have probably showed us that it's also an athletic game far more than we ever admitted. And because of that, you are getting absolute freak athletes who are being backed up by their cricket boards. So, uh, you know, West Indies cricket taking Andre Russell out on the field when he has no knees left because they know what kind of an athlete he is when it comes to batting and bowling and fielding, even if they know he might not make it through the game. You know, uh, he would have retired seven, eight years ago in, you know, uh, so we have the ability to keep athletes on the field, but we're also chasing athletes, right? I remember Ashton Agar, you know, one of the big pushes with Ashton Agar wasn't that he was particularly skilled in any one thing in cricket. It's that Cricket Australia thought he was one of the best cricket athletes they had seen in his ability to move in the field, in his ability to learn new skills as a batter, um, uh, run quickly between the wickets, um, he was tall and lanky with his bowling, you know, all these sorts of things. So we're probably moving now towards maybe the a more athletic era of cricket, partly because they're being backed up, but partly because we're looking for athletes now. We're not just looking for cricketers anymore. Can we find someone who is, you know, I mean, a perfect example of that is probably someone like Alex Carey or, or Matthew Wade. They're both, or Matthew Wade would have been a professional footballer had he not got cancer when he was a teenager. Alex Carey was a professional footballer. Um, and, you know, their ability to, you know, come to cricket later as a professional um, and still be that good shows you that just being a good athlete, we can teach them skills. And I don't think that's how we used to think about cricket. I think we used to think about cricket as, ah, oh, you know, he knows this, which is a huge thing for associate cricket and women's cricket because we now can find really good athletes and train them up with really good skills. Whereas before you needed to come from a cricket background. There's a reason we only had a handful of cricket test nations. It's because if you didn't come from that background, you wouldn't learn the shibboleths, right? Whereas now a Nepalese kid can go onto YouTube and go, Oh, that's how you bowl a wrong. I can do that. Right. I've been talking to all these fast bowlers recently about the wobble ball, about 90% of them learn it from watching TV. These are professional. This is one of those players was Jade Dernback. We're talking about, he, he'd finished his international career and he's watching TV and he watches the wobble ball and he goes, Oh, I could probably learn that. Right. That's how, that's the era that we are moving into um, now where those are not secrets that, you know, you had to be, learn from a, you know, a drunk uncle or a good cricket coach or you, you know, your, your school teacher. We now, you can just learn those things. And so that really, we're probably coming to the era of cricket being opened up. Uh, to other countries and we're coming to the era of great athletes learning the skills that previously great tech te uh, technicians had known absolutely and you know that's why sometimes we joke among our circle that Virat Kohli can go sleeveless and practice his soccer skills and shorts and still look like an international athlete and you can't say that about cricketers say 20 years ago the best batsmen probably wouldn't measure up to like other other sports people of their generation you're, you're right I tell you what I've got a very good Indian cricket story about this 
I can't remember when it was, but it was about 10 years ago when India was in England and they all started playing football and they started playing football after the game. They'd lost the game. They went out to have a, have a, a kick around of the football and there was, it was in Nottingham and there were all these um, Nottingham fans there and I happened to be walking past and they were like, look at this bunch. Not, not one of them would get in our local football team, right? And they weren't just talking skills. They were talking man boobs and side, ba- uh, you know, and lack of muscles in their legs and all those sorts of things. And that's not picking on the Indian team. There's, I've seen that right across the board. That is changing massively. And we are getting, and Ben Stokes is, and, and Andre Russell before his knees went, those are athletes that you can, pl- uh, Mitchell Stark is another one. Ravi Jadeja, those are athletes you can plug and play into a lot of different sports, right? Absolutely. A lot of different sports. Um, I'm not sure that Mark Greatbatch and Mike Gatting are exactly those kinds of players, right? And that's not to say we won't still get great technicians coming through our game because it does back technical skills, right? And you will always get, you know, Vernon Philander come through, right? But I do think now, for the first time in a long time, we are prioritizing world-class athletes. We had world-class athletes before. I think Kapil Dev was one, I think. Um, Imran Khan, Keith Miller, Garfield Sobers were, but now we're prioritizing them. And I think that's a huge change. Sure. All right. So Imran Khan is a great mention. So to bring in Virat Kohli, you know, his captainship tenure. And again, uh, the man is a true superstar, broadcaster's delight, you know, drives a lot of narratives. So you recently wrote a piece and you are also of the opinion, it's hard to measure captaincy. So let me ask you, how do you measure culture? Because a lot of people say he's single-handedly responsible for bringing this fast bowling culture. He said, okay, I'm going to play with five batsmen, the team composition change. And I would even throw in my own theory in there, uh, if you want to factor in. He created more jobs because MS Dhoni had the same 15 or 16 men traveling with him. Maybe, you know, he didn't get to play with a Bumrah in his day, but, you know, he would play like three seamers, the two spinners, and the composition was different. Our previous Indian captains played with six batsmen. So answer this culture question, adding my caveat, if you think it's valid that Virat Kohli not only is responsible, he gave, if you're a touring party of six seamers and you know four will play, so he created like job security. You're not warming the bench. So how do you see that when you measure his culture and contribution? So uh, MS Dhoni had Ravi Jadeja and Ravi Jadeja couldn't make any runs under him, right? No one believed in Ravi Jadeja more than MS Dhoni. Would you agree? He basically propped him up as a cricketer when everyone wanted to move on from him. Right, Ravi Jadeja hits his peak batting age and starts to make proper test runs. You then have an all-rounder who can bat in your top seven and you completely change your side. What did Virat Kohli do to help Ravi Jadeja that MS Dhoni didn't? I can't think of a single thing. I can't think of a single thing. That is the biggest change in the Indian cricket team. They went from being a team. And if you go back and listen to all of MS Dhoni's press conferences from when did I start covering him? 2011, 2012, till when he retired, he mentioned that India couldn't find an all-rounder again and again and again. Suddenly they have an all-rounder and the flexibility that Virat Kohli has compared to MS Dhoni has changed massively. We look for these things that follow our narrative, but the actual truth of the matter is something changed crickety. Ishant Sharma, MS Dhoni, again, 
God, the amount of times that MS Dhoni bent over backwards to put a shit Ishan Sharma into his team. When does Ishan Sharma get really good? When Virat Kohli comes along. Would he have gotten good if MS Dhoni hadn't put all those hours in? I don't know. I I don't know if MS Dhoni has anything to do with that. Is it possible that he started working with people like Stefan Jones? Is it possible that Jason Gillespie just said, mate, bowl fucking half a meter fuller and you will kill? Right? I don't know what the real answer to that is. All I know is a bunch of different things happened. And the Ishant Sharma that Virat Kohli had was, for a long period, the best seam bowler in the world. Right? And that was a world that had Pat Cummins and Rabada in it. And Trent Bolt, do you know what I mean? Right? Well, you start to give those players to MS Dhoni. Are you telling me that they wouldn't have dominated if he had Ravi Jadeja being able to bat? How high did Ravi Jadeja bat for Kohli? Was it five and didn't look out of place, right? If, if Dhoni had had those things on offer to him, that would have been a better team, right? If he had late stage Ishan Sharma, if he had Jasper Brumra, right? Even, even Ashwin, Ashwin's a better player now than he was before. Now, maybe some of that was Dhoni. Maybe Dhoni kept saying, oh, when we played Ash away from home, it didn't work and I don't, I don't feel that comfortable with him. I don't know. But I, do you know what I also know? Virat Kohli doesn't play Ash always away from home. Right? He still pulls him out of games that I think it makes absolutely no sense not to have the world's best spinner playing in. Right? We are looking at results, but fundamentally, we have to be honest here and say that Virat Kohli's Indian team is far superior to MS Dhoni's Indian team. Now, you and I both watched a lot of cricket. It would be hard for either of us to sit here with a straight face and say that we think that Virat Kohli is a better captain based on our eyes than MS Dhoni. MS Dhoni is one of the few people, I think, who actually impacts a game positively regularly as a captain. Not to mention what he does for team building. Not to mention that everyone knows their role in an MS Dhoni team to a level of which is it's phenomenal that he's just... You're here to do this because we know you do this. This is what you're going to do. And we're going to back you even when you play poorly. And, and, you know, Virat's very good at backing people, but he runs hot and cold, right? He, he can't help himself. And that's not to say in any way Virat Kohli is not a good captain because he could be. The thing is, if you're just basing it on what you've talked about, he had a better team than MS Tony. If you have a better team, I don't care if you're a better captain, right? If you, if you hypothetically go into a cricket match where you have the exact same level of talent as the opposition um, team and your captain is better, I would assume that means that you are going to win more games, right? But that's not how cricket games work. It's almost, it almost never in any situation do two teams go in exactly equally set up to play each other. All right. So the amount that a captain actually does is so minuscule. And the amount of things that go into you being a successful team is so endless. We end up just going, ah, oh, it must be leadership. Right. It must be leadership. Well, if Virat Kohli was that good a captain, why are RCB such a fucking dumpster fire all the time? If he's that good a leader and he can change culture so much, he had Brendan McCullum with him. Another person who gets absolute respect for changing culture and being a great leader. And RCB was still a fucking dumpster fire, right? So at a certain point, you have to say, if he's doing it everywhere, which MS Dhoni has, as far as I'm aware, unless I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting any particular um, uh, problems with his career, but MS Dhoni has been consistent pretty much everywhere he's gone of having genuinely, genuinely winning teams. You'd have to say that that person is playing a big part of, uh, of that role with their leadership, culture, preparation, whatever you want it to be, right? It could be a bunch of all these different things. Even MS Dhoni probably couldn't answer that question properly because we have no metrics to be able to do it. 
if you're having success and you're uh, and you've got, I mean, India have the best bowling lineup in world cricket by a distance. New Zealand may have a better seam bowling attack, but they don't have any spin options that are world class. Um, uh, and they don't have an all-rounder that allows them the flexibility that India have. Australia has a good bowling attack, but unless Cameron Green becomes what it looks like Cameron Green could become, they don't have the fifth bowling option to go with India. And Nathan Lyons, not anywhere near as good as the two best spinners from, from India, right? So when you break all that down, you've got a player who is a very competent captain, which most international captains are. I don't think there are that many negative international captains. I really don't. Um, and you have an, a, a great team. They might still have, even with all the, even with Rahane, Pajara, and Kohli all stopping making runs, they might still have the second best batting lineup in the world. Right? It's still an incredible batting lineup. Um, and that no one else is making any runs anywhere, right? When you factor all that in, how is it fair to say that he's a great captain over that he's a captain who had a phenomenal team that was better than the person who had it before? And, you know, my, 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 my thing is here, and you've read the piece, so you know about this, but the two of the five most winningest captains in the history of cricket both had the same bowling attack. That's not a mistake. That's how you win test matches with great bowlers, right? You need batters to win consistently, but to win test matches, you need great bowlers. Um, and Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting essentially had more or less the same bowling attack spread over a few different years, you know, kept some coming and going plays, but Gillespie, Warren, McGrath, right? They both had access to those people. They both had access to Brett Lee as well. Uh, they both had access to Stuart McGill, right? When you have that, you can be a good captain without it. There is absolutely nothing that you could ever tell me that would convince me that Steve Waugh was a better captain than his streak. And one of them virtually never won a test match as a captain, and one of them did. And go back and have a look at his streaks record. He basically turned himself into a batter when he became a captain because he had to. He bowled himself into the absolute dirt. And tactically, didn't think he was any better or worse than Steve Waugh. Geez, his streak would have been a handy captain if he had Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne to hand the ball to. So that's uh, that's exactly what I expected because uh, I've you know read your pieces and you've never shied away from this and many modern day commentators don't shy away from the fact either they all like Mike Brearley's book but that's more like a leadership book now because the game mm-hmm. operates differently. So let me ask you this again: a typical nuanced stat or maybe a narrative stat. Uh, he he or she you know scored these many runs as captain and then if the average better they perform better. So I want to ask this, if someone like Virat Kohli is now relieved of captainship, mm-hmm. will he be mentally more agile towards the game? Is, because uh, is there a metric to see, you know, fine, captaincy is about decision-making, who is tired, who is not, who to play, the scrutiny, the press conferences, outside noise. So can we say any captain, once they step down, are they just more there mentally? You know, are so, they less taxed? <laughs> so I did a piece recently about this. Captains average 5% more runs as captains than as non-captains in test cricket. Now that would make you think, oh, well, everyone should become a captain then because it will improve their game. <laughs> it's not, that's not quite true because most captains get the captaincy when they're in their prime batting years, right? So there's an obvious jump that you're going to have. If you get the captaincy between the age of 28 and 32 uh, or 26 and 32, uh, you're more likely to make more runs in that period. Whereas before the age of 26 and after the age of 32, there's always going to be drop-offs because you're learning the game and, and uh, you know, you're getting older and your body doesn't move the way that it used to. 
so realistically, what you said doesn't make sense. I think I think captaincy affects different people in different ways. Right? I think there are people who are born to be leaders. I think there are people who are not born to be leaders. I think there are people who are born to be cricket captains specifically. And I think there are people it doesn't particularly suit. We don't know really what that is going to be. One thing I noticed was across almost all bowling captains, they got better with the bat when they became bowling captains. Uh, I think it was Richie Benno, um, uh, Heath Streak, Imran Khan, might have been more some macro, might have been another one. I can't remember. They almost all got better um, because there was more responsibility on their batting now, right? They couldn't, how could they tear apart their batters for having failed if they're throwing their wickets away? Um, and also it meant more to them. So in some ways we know that there is an effect on batting that can be positive from captaincy. There's also no doubt for some people, a massive negative effect. Uh, I think Joe Root, Michael Vaughan, I always like to joke the two most famous Yorkshire captains, both um, their batting averages went down when they were captains, right? I think that's just dumb luck, but it's fun to make fun of Yorkshire people. But, um, uh, you know, essentially, we, we know that every single person is going to be affected differently. Here's the important thing that I would tell you. There's no way for you or I to be able to tell that. Right. No, I think this is the conversation, how it's evolved and it's very sophisticated yeah. and it's, I think, very fair. But my uh, two cents always have been Virat Kohli is the Imran Khan of this generation. If he was playing his cricket the similar way in 80s and 90s, he would probably be the greatest captain of all time because the narratives always got in the way. And a lot of people have told me like Kohli's aggressive body language doesn't make him aggressive. He's actually not an aggressive captain tactically. So there's mm. a lot that goes into this. Well, let, let's look at, you, you talked about Imran Khan there. Imran Khan, when he was a captain, well, for, I don't uh, not just when he was a captain, but for the, what was it, the final 10 years of his career, averaged over 50 with the bat and under 20 with the ball when he was captain. Used himself perfectly in both positions. Wasn't a great batter, but ended up with great batting uh, average. Was obviously a great bowler, but also used himself really cleverly because he was getting on in age, right? Virat Kohli, as what's he been averaging over the last three, four, five years, right? It's low, really low, right? Is it under 30, I think now, isn't it? Whatever that period is. Imran Khan was absolutely at the peak of his powers and could bat in a very safe batting position down the order. Um, and with a bowler, had so many good bowling options that he only had to use himself when the condition suited himself, right? Virat Kohli is batting number four in a period where batting at number four has not been this tough since before World War One, right? Yeah. You have to know when and where and, and all these things that people are doing. I'm not saying Virat Kohli is a good or a bad captain um, because there's so much that we can't even get, right? Is there, you know, what happened to Kuldeep Yadav? Is that Virat Kohli? So many people would tell you it is. I look at the numbers and I know exactly why I think Kuldeep Yadav has gone. But other people would tell you, ah, oh, Kohli didn't believe in him, right? I don't think that's true. And I think again and again, you people look for snapshots and they look for easy answers. There are no easy answers to any of this sort of stuff. We can tell with a batter to a certain extent. But for how many generations have we overestimated Australian batters? And now we do, uh, up until recently, we were doing it with Indian batters because of the fact that they batted on the two best batting surfaces in world cricket. Whereas New Zealand batters were all like, oh, well, they're rubbish. Look at all these New Zealand batters. They can't bat. That's because the New Zealand wickets were bloody bright green radioactive tracks, 
right? Last last five years, they've made them all batting tracks. Now, well, who's the best batting lineup in the world? New Zealand. You have to use context. You have to work out what is going on. You have to look at the full picture. And that is not what people want to do. They just want to say Virat Kohli is good or Virat Kohli is bad. I'm not even sure there is an answer to that that is a logical one when it comes to te- uh, cricket. If you ask me my actual opinion, I'd say he's a fairly standard captain who did a lot of very good things when it came to fitness, who did a lot of very good things when it came to professional uh, pro- professionalism, but basically probably carried on from a brilliant captain and had a really good su- support staff around him um, and lucked into having a great team. Ricky Ponting probably did exactly the same thing, right? And Ricky Ponting not seen as a great captain, um, and uh, or sorry, not consistently known as a great captain. Virat Kohli probably there and thereabouts within people in cricket, right? There are some people who will tell you he is, some people who tell you he wouldn't. There are some people, some people who played under Ricky Ponting who when they hear he's a bad captain would be like, I would run through walls for that man. And I'd be like, that's great. But, you know, essentially you're in the side to play your forward defence, right? <laughs> it's not about how he made you feel. It's about whether he got the most out of you in the field. And I can't tell if he did or not because... You at that era, you were this good a cr- cricketer and you did these things. Um, a, a perfect example of this was a couple of years ago, an Australian cricketer took me aside and said, Have a look at Nathan Lyon's record, have a look at how good he is as a bowler when Brad Haddon plays, and how bad he is as a bowler when uh, Matthew Wade plays. And obviously, Brad Haddon was a better wicket keeper than Matthew ha- Wade. Well, I don't say obviously, but subjectively, he was a better wicket keeper. Now, I look at the record, the, his bowling average is almost identical <laughs> to both of them. Right. But yeah, in cricket, that was the that was the narrative. It's like got to get Haddon back in the team because Wade is ruining Nathan Lyon. It just wasn't yeah, true. I'm so guilty too now. At least Kohli's captaincy has come full circle for the two and a half or three years. I was of uh, the strong opinion that even though Chiteshwar Pajara plays a pivotal role in this Indian batting lineup, his job was very insecure because the intent word that was thrown around, he wasn't really back, but he was picked. But now in the end, you know, Kohli goes and Pujara goes. So kind of the slap is on my face that Kohli did back him. You know, it's a hard pill for someone like me to accept because I had a convenient argument going because they did bring the intent talk a lot of time in the press and yeah. it was driven towards Pujara. But uh, Pujara did play a lot of test matches here. It's not like, you know, he was dropped every year. No, I think, I, and I think things like that is, I, I think there is... There's a great, Michael, I don't know why we're doing Michael Jordan again, but I'll go back to Michael Jordan. There's a great Michael Jordan story, I think, from the Jordan rules. Um, actually, it might even be from one of the other books where Michael Jordan is playing with Bill Cartwright. Bill Cartwright was a, quite a skillful player back in his day, but he's a big lumbering seven-foot center. And by the time he gets to Michael Jordan, he's basically just filling a spot. You need to get 10 rebounds a game and get out of my way. And Jordan is passing the ball to Cartwright over and over again. And the ball's just bouncing off Cartwright (laughs) again and again. And Cartwright can't get these things. And eventually someone goes up to Jordan and says, you're passing him the ball like he's you. He's a seven foot, 32 year old man. (laughs) And you're a 24 year old best athlete ever. You have to pass the ball at the way that Bill Cartwright needs it. Right. And I think that, Virat, for me, was very similar to Ricky Ponting and Michael Jordan in that they're so singular about winning. Why can't everyone be like me? Why can't everyone else give up carbs? Why can't everyone else dedicate their life to getting themselves in the best physical fitness? Why can't everyone else change the angle of the way that they play because teams have started bowling that way to them, right? 
they don't actually understand that that is why they are Michael Jordan and Ricky Ponting and Virat Kohli, right? That if everyone could do it, they wouldn't be that person. They'd just be you or me, right, at a certain point. And their ability to be able to do that sometimes blinds them to the fact that they can, that they don't know how to do that. And, and you can see with someone like Ricky Ponting, he's really changed as a person in later life. Whereas I don't think Michael Jordan, look at the last, last dance, he hasn't, right? And who knows what sort of thing Virat will do. But Virat was saying, why aren't you playing cover drives, Che Pajara? I can hit cover drives, you know, and I am a, um, I, I, it works for me, it will work for you. But that's not how it works, right? You and I know that. Pajara made it to international cricket because he doesn't play a cover drive, right? He only plays a cover drive when you basically give him a throwdown ball, right? He's waiting for you to be broken as a man before he plays a cover drive. And that is not always easy for a legend to understand, right? And we all learn these things differently. You know, I, I teach writing to people and I understand, you know, it's hard for me to be like, why are you doing that? Just get the narrative right. It's ob- this is the narrative. This is obviously the narrative. Why are you writing about that? Of course I know that. Narrative comes naturally to me. It's always come naturally to me. This other poor schmuck who might have better writing skills than me sitting there going, I I thought that was the narrative. I thought I'd nailed it, right? You have to understand how you deal with people. And I think some of that with Virat was him. He just wanted the team to be better. And he's like, come on, let's do this. Intent works. It's always worked for me. Intent works for you, but it doesn't work for Raul Dravid and it doesn't work for Chiteshwa Pajara and it would look silly on Dom Sibley, right? Dom Sibley would have averaged minus five if he had intent, right? He would never, we wouldn't even know who Dom Sibley was if he had intent, right? Dom Sibley's lack of intent was how he made test cricket. And you have to be realistic about that. But you also have to understand that that's not a, Coley still, Coley might say that at a press conference and it might put pressure on Pajara, but then Coley and Pajara are going to have a conversation. We've heard one bit of it. Oh, Coley's a bad captain because he said this. Or Coley's a good captain because he said this. The important thing is, what is the full system behind? You know, is Shastri taking Pajara outside and said, you know, he doesn't really mean you. He's obviously talking about you, but he, he, you're in this team to do what you do, right? We don't know if that doesn't happen. We don't know if Coley hasn't said, oh, I've stuffed up at the press conference. Can, can um, Pajara, can I take you aside? And I really just meant everyone who's not you. Or I meant you, but I meant in this way, not in this way right? Yeah. Or, you know, that's why we can't judge leadership. We're not there for all those conversations. And here's the thing. If you and I now spent three hours interviewing Bajara and Kohli, they wouldn't agree exactly on this, on those conversations that they did have and on what Kohli said, because that's not how things work. That, you know, we, you and I can go deep into the numbers and we can get a really good understanding of how great a player Virat Kohli is. There's nothing to delve into for this test cricket. Uh, for the captaincy thing, right? It's kind of nonsense at a certain point. The only thing you can see is um, if a person is good, even when they don't always have a good team, right? And there's very few captains who are like that, right? I mean, everyone in, in Kolkata wanted Owen Morgan sacked at the first half of the IPL. How'd they go in the second half of the season? He didn't get any better at batting. He didn't make any runs, right? Is he a good captain or is he a bad captain? Well, first half of the year he's bad and second half of the year he's good. I don't think that's true. He was probably just as good all the way through. Some things fell, fell into place for him in the second half of the season. And at the start of the season, they went the other way. And we rush to judgments and we pick things that fit our narrative because that's what we do as humans. This is not an accident. Racism isn't an accident, right? Racism comes from 
the early part of our evolution when the first black person walked into an area where he saw the first white person and vice versa, right? There's, there's, there's an evolution thing when we make all these shortcuts in our head to fit these things. That's why narrative is a thing because we, you and I could not possibly go through all the different paths of Virat Kohli's captaincy because our minds are too slow working to be able to do that. And no one could even come up with an algorithm to be able to work that out. That's just the truth. Yeah, that's brilliantly put. I'm going to rest this Pajara and Kohli question forever. I think I have some closure. So let's wrap this podcast up. We're already 70 minutes into it. So one broad question. India has a world-class bench. You know, a lot of people, a lot of teams would take Pujara, uh, Prithvi Shaw, and so, some of the guys who probably won't figure in the Indian Test 11 going forward. Uh, what's happening in world cricket? Why have the 40-plus averages dried up? Why Australia would struggle when Stephen Smith calls it a day? And why doesn't Joe Root have enough partners across the globe? What's, what's the, is it the multi-format? Boards have shifted their attention to uh, limited overs cricket. Uh, domestic cricket is kind of uh, being sacrificed. Uh, just fire away. Unpack it as a closing remarks here. Uh, the first thing, the first time we saw people stop making runs was in the middle of 2017. That's the period where analysis has completely taken over test cricket. Right? When you do analysis, it usually helps the bowlers a little bit more than the batters. In test cricket, the bowlers are the attackers, which helps them even more. We also then have a combination of people being trained correctly for probably the first time in cricket in that not only am I going to tell you that you need to bowl around the wicket to Travis Head, I'm going to make sure that you train in the nets and that you get the proper support so that you are able to bowl around the wicket to Travis Head. I'm not just going to say, oh, this guy's weak around the wicket, ball around the wicket, because you don't know how to ball around the wicket. Those two things was a huge thing. Jimmy Anderson can sit in his bed with his iPhone now and just swipe. He might have an Android, I'm not sure. And swipe through every ball just outside off stump angled back into Steve Smith. He ever wants to see. Looking for anything. You're putting information in the hands of guys who are only at that level of cricket because they are incredible at dismissing players and you're giving them support staff to do it, technology, and then coaching to nail it. Those three things are really important. Another thing was that there is absolutely no doubt that CEOs around the world realized that flat pitches were not working for test cricket. It wasn't selling the game. It wasn't getting people in. And so I don't know if they all got together as a group. I, I know they talked about it as a group, but a lot of them got together and went, these five days, I used to call them CEO Brown pitches, absolutely killing test cricket. There is no doubt that the pitches now are more lively everywhere in the world over the last five years than they were beforehand. That's a huge help. The other thing is the Duke's ball is now used in two locations and the, and the Kookaburra ball seam has been fixed. So the Kookaburra helps bowlers a lot more than it ever has right at the moment. And then the, the major one, uh, the two other major ones are the bowlers have been trained where to bowl the ball by DRS, by Hawkeye. So before, if you go back and think to your memory, think about how many times did, Glenn McGrath didn't bowl close to stumps very often, ever. Most of his balls were outside of stump. And 
now almost all balls are bowled from wider the wicket angling back in so the batter at least feels like the ball is going to hit the stumps more even if it's not going to hit that much more often the other thing we know is that if you want to get an lbw you have to pitch the ball up pitching the ball up means the ball's moving around a lot more if you do that on a slightly helpful pitches all these things change and then the other major part of it is the average hasn't dropped that much for spin it's dropped in one particular kind of bowling seam bowling if it was white ball cricket, why is everyone playing spin at a similar level than they did before? The fact that it's not uh, um, just spin ball, uh, not, it's not um, spin bowling, and it's almost all the drop has come from seam bowling. And I mean, we're talking about six runs dropping off. It was 32 average from 2014 to 2017, and it's a 26 average. That's a massive drop, right? Un- unknown in the history of cricket to have seen bowlers suddenly get so dominant at one time. Now, the reason for that specific drop is probably more to do with the wobble ball. Starts in 2010, gets quite big in England around 2014, 2015, 2016. Slowly spreads around the game, but it needs pitches that give you a little bit more assistance, which we started to have. Then the other thing it needed was a really strong seam on the ball. Kookaburra in 2019 changed the seam uh, on the red cricket ball. (laughs) They made it reinforced. The first test match that I'm aware of that used the reinforced cricket balls, India were bowled out for 36. You may remember it. Go back and look at the highlights. Look how many wobble balls were bowled by Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood. The Australian bowlers six months before didn't know how to bowl it. That's how stark and how quick things changed. They went from not knowing how to bowling it to completely dominating teams with it uh, within a short period of time. That's a lot of changes. DRS has changed cricket in ways that we haven't even fully understood yet. And by DRS, I, you know, I really mean Hawkeye as much as anything. Um, uh, the LBWs, spinners, completely started dominating at first because they could just ping the ball in at the stumps. Um, uh, now seamers have worked out, wait a minute, if I can hit the bales over and over and over again, eventually this guy's going to miss. And they do. Now you add in what, so the modern tactic is to come wide of the crease. We were always taught as kids to come close to the crease and swing the ball away. Modern seamers are taught to come wide of the crease, angle the ball in so it feels like it's coming back to the stumps with a wobble ball. And there are two kinds of wobble balls. There's the one that moves away and the one that moves in. The one that moves away, you want to pitch that on off stump. And if it goes dead straight, it'll still hit leg stump, hopefully. If it doesn't and it moves away, it's either going to hit off stump or take the outside edge, right? Good luck playing that when you have no clue what the ball is going to do at 85 miles an hour, at 90 miles an hour, at 95 miles an hour, right? The other one is the one angled in from outside off stump. You pitch it just outside off stump so that if if it went dead straight, it should theoretically at least go within an inch or two of hitting off stump, but the perfect one hits the top of off stump, right? Then you can seam it back in. So sometimes it will seam back in, which means it started outside of stump and it now racks you on the pads in front of middle and leg and you're out LBW, right? So if it goes straight, you've still got a chance of maybe hitting the outside of off stump, but also the chance of taking the outside edge. And then you have the chance, if it seems back in, of a boulder and LBW. Now, Richard Hadley, just to use a random example, was an absolute genius with the cricket ball but everyone could see that he was about to bowl an outswinger. 
with wobble ball, you don't know what's about to happen. Technically, the bowler doesn't know if this one's going to go straight or this one's going to come in. How do you play that when Richard Hadley bowled at, by the end of his career, bowled at around 125 kilometers an hour, and Pat Cummins is as accurate as Richard Hadley at 145 kilometers an hour? I don't know how batters are supposed to bat, right? And the thing is, the white ball only does it for about an over or two because, as we know, the white ball is absolute rubbish. The red ball and even the pink ball does it for longer. That's where the drop-off has been. Hopefully that explains it for everyone out there. No, definitely you. Uh, It was educational, this response, and I would like to end it here. I mean, a lot of takeaways uh, with this, Alvin. I tried to promote this podcast on Twitter. Thank you. This was a brilliant episode, as expected. I hope I kept you engaged for like, 80 minutes and you were not bored. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully we can do this again at some point. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on.